So um, don't let the over-familiarity, might be over-familiar to you. you. You know the story about the little guy who climbs the tree, Jesus turns his world around. You know this story. Don't let the over-familiarity of that mean that you just ignore the next 20 minutes. This is your, this is your talk for this week. This is, I mean, maybe you have your great quiet times on Sunday, uh, Sunday night, Monday mornings, but this is a chance to come together and hear God um, speak. We had, when we started the refurb, we had a, a vision, not bolts of lightning from the sky, but convictions about things that were really important to us. One word that came to us as we created the space outside with God's will and God's blessing was the idea that church should be a refuge. It should be a sanctuary. We wanted to create a space and be a people where we would be looking out for people just coming in. We would see, we would be a space where the doors would be open and people, and we wouldn't just, in, in a place that offers lots and has lots of attractions, that our space would be a space where, and I realize as I'm saying it out loud now, the vision is so grand and it's just unachievable almost, but that we would look for the hearts of people, that we'd care for people, that we'd bother to take time, that if I'm cracking on writing a sermon in there, I'd be able to drop it and I'd just really want to talk to them, that we'd look into their souls, that we'd have time for them, that we'd be a real refuge, that they'd come in maybe with the weight of the world on their backs and we would be able to share Jesus with them and talk to them. And that we, as we did that in this place, and we're still excited about this now, I don't know, five or six years down the line, that that news, it would be like a light on a hill. Another phrase that just stays in our mind as Christchurch, that it would reverberate around the place. Just, just that, almost just the simple act of care for people, just that we were bothered in this place would reverberate. There's still, there's a great care need that exists for this world out there at the moment. There is a huge need. But does that care need to be a Christian care now? Does it need to be a Christian thing? Are we still needed to care? It used to be the case. And I would say you could make a strong argument to say it's been the case for 2,000 years that Christians have found themselves at the forefront of care. Christians have done, and there's a lot happening with cancel culture now, and there's lots getting swept under the carpet, but Christians have done some amazing things. Look at all your hospitals. Some of the acts of care that Christians have done over time. As I was researching this, I read about the early Christians who would, often it was the way in pagan times when you would just leave your baby, if it was unwanted, on a, on a dump Early Christians would go and grab these babies, pick them up and raise them. Christians have been involved in so much charitable work at the forefront of this. A lot of these charities, a lot of this good work, still has the Christian name above it. Think of the Samaritans, think of the Red Cross, Bernardo's, think of so much of this stuff and it's become secularized. Does care still need to be Christian. Does it matter that I say to you, trying to be impassioned, we want to care for people? Does it matter that it's motivated by God? Does the world need this? Here's my answer, and it's the basis of the sermon. I'm going to try and make it a short talk. The answer I would say to you, as passionate as a, like a Dower Yorkshireman could be, is yes, it still needs us. It still needs the church. It still needs God. There's two reasons. 
One's a bit philosophical, but it's short because I'm not a philosopher. But I want to get your attention and I want to make a, a point. The second point is to Jesus. Yes, because we don't care as much as we know that we should care. Just let that, I'm going to come back to that, so just let that rumble around in your head. We don't care as much as we know that we should care. And only something outside of ourselves can change that around. We've tried looking into ourselves. Only something outside of ourselves can shift this. We don't care as much as we know we should. So I'm going to quote a philosopher. So I try and, I feel like I always need to state because I'm just such a regular Yorkshireman that I don't read philosophy very often. But I know a few, and I have a few books that I turn to. And there's this one guy, and it happens that he's still alive. So if you want to take it or anything up with him, you can still take it with him. He's called Peter Singer. He has this theory. And like all philosophers when they're alive, nobody likes him. And I don't like him. I don't like what I'm going to explain to you now. I don't like. If I was to meet him, I think I'd, I'd be a bit annoyed with him. His basic philosophy is that as humans, we should care more. We don't care enough. He says his main way of theorizing this, his main way of encouraging people to grasp, with it, grasp it, he tells the story of a child drowning in a lake. And somebody walking past on their way to work, seeing their child, they've got their suit on, and this person is knee-deep in mud, and the person in the suit, he says, would stop at nothing to offer care and assistance to the child, even if it's out of his depth or their depth, even if it meant muckying their suit up. They would stop at nothing. And yet, he goes on to say, there are hundreds of thousands of millions and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an awkward squeeze, is this, for all of us in the room. Hundreds of thousands of millions of kids and adults facing similarly tragic circumstances, and we don't care. He says, this is his theory, we know that we should care. We're compelled to care. We see him in front of us, we know that we should. We've got means to care. The humans, this... No, and I'm not talking specifically about church people here. I'm talking about humans. We know that we should care. We've got the means to care. But we don't seem to do it. We know that we should. We're able, but we don't. And he theorizes that what we do as humans is dodge it. His main theory is that we let distance take the edge off our need to care for other people. We see that it's a long way away, most of it, and we say, I don't need to care. Or we remove ourselves. I wonder if he's thinking that we stop looking at care. We distance ourselves from people that we see that need our care. The other thing that he says that we do is we self-preserve. When we think about how much care we should get out, we think, and I've had this, I get this a lot, we think, have I got room for this? Sometimes I'll switch the news off when it's traumatic because I think I can't cope knowing that there's any more struggling people in the world. I have to block that out and just focus on my little gang. He says that we self-preserve. It's this idea that if we care anymore or care too much, we'll lose the established position that we've got. If everybody cared, nobody would be at the top of the pile. And right now in the UK, we're quite near the top of the pile. The other thing that he says we worm our way out of it is that we worry about the outcome. We don't offer care because we think, is this going to actually do any good? 
If I offer this care, I do that a lot when I think about how I should look after people, maybe homeless people I see. Is this going to actually help? Get really cynical about that. You think to yourself, it won't do any good. They won't, lo- they won't learn. It's better in my pocket. It's a really squirmy, tough listen. I've started off on a really squirmy, tough note, haven't I? And we want to sort of regale against it and say, no, but I do care. Sure, I'm sure I do care. I'm sure that the humans do care. Peter Singer's theory is that we don't care enough. We can't hear it. But then as I stopped to think about it this afternoon, I thought, actually, if we assess this in human terms, if we assess this as us as a species, or even us as a nation, maybe even us as the global church, maybe even us as the church, when we think that there are out there millions of people who don't have a house, millions of people who have severe hunger, poverty, and we don't even need to be as extreme as that. There are millions of people who are just lonely. Millions of people just having a hard time. I think to myself, what he's saying is really out of order. But actually, he's got a point. I don't know if the humans care enough. Now, if we dare to stop to think about this for a few minutes, I think it gives us, I think it's the right word, and I sometimes get the wrong words. I think it gives us like an existential dilemma. It the ache that we feel when we see the piles of food that we took out of the supermarket and the fact that we need food banks, that ache that we're not caring enough gives us this existential question that sort of makes us look at ourselves and go, who, who on earth are we? If, we? if we know that we should care, which Singer says that we do, and I think we feel that we do, and if we've got the means to care, but we don't, who on earth are we? Now, there are some really, there's some like solid, I'm going to level with you. There's some solid, Christian bringing you the God theory. There's some solid atheistic theories as to why that is the case. But if you're new to Christianity or if you're searching, think about this. Just think about the Bible's answer for this. God made us to look after each other. He made us to steward this planet He created us to do that. That's in our DNA and our design, that longing to love, that need to love one another. And the Bible says that as we've lost sight of God, we've lost sight and the, we've lost sight of other people and the ability to care for other people. And that leaves us with an ache. Now I would say to you, above all the other things, that's got to at least be a plausible pointer to the fact that we need a God, that we were made by a God. If the problem is within us, and we have looked within us for so long, then the answer has got to be outside of us, I would say. That's the first thing I'm going to say. Now, I want to talk about how Jesus, how God, turns this story around. How only God can turn this story around. That's the message, isn't it? I'm not here to tell you that the secular way is the good way. I'm here to tell you that what God brings, what is outside of ourselves, matters. We're going to look at the story of Zacchaeus, so keep your eyes on the text up there. And I want, I want us to see how God takes that, what is the archetypal guy who tries to worm his way out of care for other people, how he takes him and he changes his life around. Zacchaeus kept his distance from the people. Zacchaeus' self 
preserved. He looked after himself. He reasoned that his, the, his care, his money was better in his pocket than anybody else. And verses one to four set the scene. And I know you know this story really well. And I know you're desperate to switch off and you go, I know what this looks like. Read it again. It's ace. Jesus is passing through. He enters Jer- Jericho. He's passing through. He's not intending to stop there. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Don't know why I've said it like that. Zacchaeus, that's what I normally call him. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Every reason not to like this guy worming his way out of care. He was a tax... Don't know if you've got any tax collectors in. Don't want to upset anybody. But he was a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector and he was a corrupted chief tax collector and he was a corrupted chief tax collector that worked for the enemies. He got every reason worked to the Romans, every reason not to like him. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way. We'll get to verse 5 in a second. So just have the scene in your mind. He's a little guy. He's absolutely rammed. Jesus is passing through. Not intending to stop, and he's like, I've, got to, I've heard so much about this guy, I've got to see this guy. And then we're going to look at verse 5, see how Jesus starts to change things around. He says in verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, I want us to think about the spot, he looked up and he said to him, it's quite sharp, Jesus isn't often this sharp, to people he's just met, come down immediately, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. First thing, and it's more of an aside, in terms of thinking about how Jesus changes things around for us, how he encourages us to give. I think there's some strategy here. It's not the main point of the text. Don't let me take you down the garden path. I've read this story since I was a nipper. I've read this story since I was a little kid. And I've always, it always reads to me like he just happens to be there. Just ends up in this spot. If we believe Jesus is who he said he was, I don't really think he ends up anywhere. He ends up underneath the richest, smarmiest guy with most means to change things in all of Jericho. He stops underneath him. If, you, if you're going to stop anywhere, if your agenda is, and one of Jesus' agendas was to bring about change, to turn things around, equalize things, if that's your agenda, then you're going to stop under this tree. It's a clever place to spot if you want to change things. Jesus is a little bit strategic here, I think. Now, we know because of stories like the widow's might that the really important thing when we care and when we give is our hearts. But the Bible is loaded with stories of strategy when it comes to care. God uses kings and princes and leaders to dish out his care. When he told Nehemiah, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to get there and make the temple. When God said, you need some wood for that, it was the king of Persia that he pestered with a letter. When Israel was in its infancy and it needed money, when it was just a tiny family, it was the prince of Egypt that the family went to, that God aided them with. Quite strategic. There's a lot of help available from the princes and the kings and the leaders of this world. I think, I think giving's about your heart, primarily. 
I love the widow's mite story. It's about giving what you have, but there's so much room in the Bible. When we want to, if, if, we're, if our hearts are moved to care, there is so much license for, and room and motivation for us to be smart about this, for us to trouble the big guys, for us to actually want to do something that can really change things around. First thing I think that we see that Jesus is strategic. Second thing that he does as he brings him down out of the tree is he levels Levels Zacchaeus as he levels us. Zacchaeus, I don't know if he was hiding in this tree. He was up out of the way. He had a private viewing. And when Jesus met him, he said to himself, this is not going to happen in private. Zacchaeus had to come down. The guy that had cheated all these people that were lined up in this queue, Zacchaeus, if if he was going to deal with Jesus, if he was going to have a radical encounter... If Jesus was going to transform him, he was going to start with doing it in front of everybody else. He brings him down out of the tree. He levels him. Imagine just for a second, this guy on the start of a journey to faith, and this conversation he's going to have with this holy rabbi, and he's got to do it in front of all of the people that he's been cheating. He's going to have to do it in front of the people that are poor, that have got no clothes on the back because of how he's treated them. It changes things, doesn't it? when we're leveled like that, when we see poverty, real poverty for the first time, or when we see the acts of our unkindness close up. This is the second thing that I think Jesus does. He levels us. Jesus was always leveling things up. If he was at a rich man's party, he needed the rich man to see that a poor man mattered just as well, and he'd bring one. And if he was a righteous man or a self-righteous man's party, he would bring in the unrighteous because he knew that they needed to see that everybody was equal. This is what Jesus was doing. Everywhere that he went, he was getting us to see that we are, same, we've we've all sinned. We're all each other's neighbors, to use bits of biblical terminology. He was always leveling things up. If we, my, my contention is, if we are real believers, if our faith is in Jesus, if, we, if, we've, if we've met him, and if we've said, I'm going to follow this guy, somewhere down the road of following him, we're going to stop and be leveled up. He's going to, take us, he's going to show us the inequality in the world. Because that's where he goes. That's where he walks to. He's going to cause us to see people that we'd rather not look at. It's part of his plan. It's part of who he is. Jesus He's always leveling things up. Somewhere down the line for us, if we've not got there yet, if like me, you want to turn the TV off when you've got to look at compassionate moments that would stretch you. Somewhere down the line for us, if we really save my conviction, is somewhere down the line, he's going to stop us and cause us to look with compassion on somebody that has less than we have. The other thing that Jesus does is he gives us a different view of what saves us. So read with me verse 5 through to, I don't know, a few verses after verse 5. He says, I must stay at your house. I must stay at your house today. I always thought that that said, I'm coming around for tea. I don't know if I've got that off of a song that I've sang as a kid or something like that. But he says, I must stay at your house. He does go around, I think, for tea or something to eat. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, 
And this is the, this is the moment to turn around. And I want us to think about what's, how, is, how are these kind, kind actions possible? This is the moment to turn around that we're all familiar with. Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'm going to pay them back four times the amount. I hang on to these words. We'll come back to them. Jesus says, and think about what's been said and all that we know about salvation. Jesus says, as Zacchaeus says that, I'm going to give stuff away. Today, salvation has come to this house. The people are muttering. Why? People like to mutter. But lunch is a sign, or lunch, or dining with somebody, or going around someone's house, means more in that world, in the Near Eastern world, than it does in our world. It's a sign of intimate connection. It's a sign of a relationship. It's a sign of fellowship. It's a sign of shared bonds. And Jesus is a holy person. Jesus is somebody we think is messianic. The people are looking at him like he's, he's from God. They're trying to work it out, but they're thinking he's from God. And yet, in he goes into the house to dine with a guy who's been ripping everybody off for the last goodness knows how long. Now, remember at this point in the story that Zacchaeus likes his stuff. Zacchaeus is into self-preservation. He's been reaping those taxes in. He's been the kind of guy who's been surrounding himself with stuff, getting enough stuff so that he's safe. He's a guy whose security is in his money. But look, I think, what he realizes. As he realizes that this holy God will come to where he is and connect with him and enter into a relationship with him and get to know him, he realizes even him, the security that he has after that meeting is greater than any security that he's had previously. If even he can dine, can have in his house this man of God, then it changes how he feels about everything else. Changes how much security he thinks any can, anything else can bring. And it changes how he feels about everybody else. And he feels, it changes how he feels like how he's been treating everybody else. And what he does in this moment, and it's wonderful, he gives it away. Now notice in the text, this is not just righting wrongs. He doesn't just give back what he's nicked. I don't know where he gets all the money from, but he says, I'm going to give over and above that. Do you know what Zacchaeus turns into? Try and imagine him going door to door, giving this money back. Try and imagine these poor families of Jericho all of a sudden having nothing, all of a sudden having enough money to put in their pockets, having enough money to have a little treat, having enough money to keep the wolf from the door, having enough money to dare to dream again. He becomes a caregiver. This scumbag is changed into a caregiver. This, where do we get our care from? How do we stretch ourselves to care for other people? This is what God does. This is what something outside of ourselves can do. This is what Jesus does for us. He comes to us where we are. He comes to us and meets with us across the table. And he says, even you, I can come to be where you are. Even you can share in my promises. And as we experience the truth of that, this is what salvation is. This is what salvation is in this story, in the Bible story. It changes the way that we look at our stuff, 
Zacchaeus was so hung up on his stuff. That's what saved him. And all of a sudden, he's changed from a guy whose proof of his safety is in his stuff to becoming a, a guy who realizes that the proof, proof of his safety and his security is in whether he can give his stuff away. Do you see how closely connected, and it makes me squeam to think of it, how closely connected the idea of Zacchaeus being saved, entering eternity with God, and kindness and giving are in this passage. When I think about this, I did my little prep. I thought to myself, this can't be right. They can't, it can't be this closely connected. It can't be this synonymous. Surely I just get saved, and if I do some good things, great. And then I read, and it's a bit of a long, it's a bit of a long passage, but it's like it's like a crucial passage. And it's about judgment and it's about the end times. If that gets your blood pumping, then listen to this. And as I read this, it convicted me. Matthew 25, verse 31 to 40. I'm sorry it's not up on the screen. Talking about judgment, it's talking about people entering into eternity. It's a huge, big topic. It's brilliant. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Then he goes on to say to the people on the right, the people about to take their inheritance. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Jesus talking to the people entering into eternity. Then the righteous will answer him in confusion. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or need clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Hang on to this verse. Ignore everything else I've said and take this, this verse home. The king will reply, will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of one of these people, you did for me. Do you see what this text is about? Whatever you did for one of the least of these people, you did for me. This is about eternity. This is about heaven. This is about the kingdom of God. This is about our future. And Jesus connects it intimately. He connects himself intimately with how our salvation bears out, how we feel and care for other people. And I read that and I thought, whatever I do with this story, I can't ignore that my salvation is wrapped up in how I look at other people. Jesus is changing us from people who think that we are saved and made safe and secure by our stuff, which all of us do. And he changes us into people to get proof of our safety is if we're able to start giving that stuff away. It's the kind of stuff that blows your mind. The last thing, the last way that he changes it around, going to finish on the hour, 1 minute 30 to go on the clock. He changes the outcomes. When we give care, we're always worried about the outcomes, aren't we? Is this person going to, is he going to learn 
Are they going to learn from this nice act of kindness that I'm doing? Is it going to be appreciated? Is it going to be reciprocated? Is it just going to make things worse? We always think about the outcomes. Just imagine the scenes in Jericho and Jerusalem as an outcome of what Zacchaeus does in this moment. Imagine the sweep of joy that goes. Imagine the social transformation that comes as the richest guy in the city hands out money to everybody else after Jesus has met him. As families celebrate having a bit of money in their pockets. Imagine the news of that. You know where Jesus is going as he's passing through Jericho? He's off to Jerusalem and he's going to arrive there as king. Imagine the anticipation and the noise as they hear about what's happened in Jericho. As they hear about this person who has changed all of those outcomes around. There was huge excitement as Jesus came to Jerusalem. Amazing outcomes. Amazing, amazing outcomes. Paul writes to the church and he says, uh, the church at Galatia, and he says, don't become weary in doing good. Don't get tired of it. Don't give up on it. For at the proper time, we will reap the harvest if we don't give up. It's exhausting caring for people. The people in the caring provisions Professions, I think, work harder than everybody else. Caring for people is exhausting. Caring for people, that weight that comes on us as Christians to care for people is a burden, isn't it? We just want to give up, don't we? Paul says, don't give up. Don't give up because nothing that you do, even the stuff that's ignored, even the stuff where the outcome doesn't seem good, the Bible tells us over and over again, none of these actions, hang on to this, none of these actions are wasted. Nothing is in vain. It will reap a harvest into the future, into eternity. Just think of that when your kind actions have been ignored for the last 20 years. It's not in vain. Church, Christchurch, we Christchurch, brilliant Christchurch in the middle of escape, let us not give up on doing God, on doing good. Because we have sat down and dined with a saviour who has changed how we look at our stuff.